Welcome to Parenting Bites. This is Rebecca Levy. I'm here today with Amy Aztan of Amy Ever After. Hello. Hello. And Andrea Smith, our technology guru extraordinaire. Hello. Hello. I feel like I haven't talked to you ladies in a long time. You have not. (laughs) Way too long. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Well, today on the show, we're tackling a serious issue. We're having two special guests on, Letitia and Emily Barr. Um, Letitia is an Asian American influencer, blogger, teacher, regular guest of the show. Uh, friend of the show. Friend yes. of the show, for sure. And um, her daughter, Emily, who is amazing, uh, who also wrote a post about being a biracial, white and Asian teen. Um, they're both coming on the show today to talk about Letitia and Emily's posts in response to the Atlanta shootings and all of the anti-Asian violence that has been going on. Um, We're hoping to present resources and ideas and have a discussion about, um, you know, what is happening, sort of how it is impacting um, the Asian American community, but how it's impacting all of us and what people can do to be allies and what people can do to feel empowered um, to stand up to this no matter you are, what you are, your background, doesn't matter, um, how we can all step up and do better for each other. So we will be right back with Letitia and Emily Barr. We are back. We are here with Letitia Barr, founder of Tech Savvy Mama and middle school teacher, and her daughter, Emily, who is a high school junior. Um, and we are so happy to have you back on the show, which is the first time, Emily, (laughs) which is like a big bonus. Um, yeah, I'm excited. I'm going to embarrass you a little bit and just tell people that Emily is like one of my all time favorite, um, (laughs) now teenagers. She's, she was one of our earliest kids views kids. Um, and always like just a super rock star. So, um, I love having you guys on and I mean, I hate why we're having you on. <laughs> so I I think we have to talk about this a little, but um, in response to what happened in Atlanta last week, um, and also in response to what's been going on really um, over this past year, this acceleration of um, Asian hate and violence against um, AIP community, it's, it's really like disheartening and scary and hasn't been talked about enough. And, um, you know, Letitia, you wrote this great post in response um, that is very active and activist centered, which is one of the things I loved about it, which is six things you can do to stop Asian hate right now. Um, And I think people are looking for very concrete things they can do. So we wanted to have you on to talk about it and then have Emily talk to us, too, about her post sort of written in response to your post um, about being a biracial teen um, and her experience with anti-Asian racism. So thank you both for being here. Thank you for having us on. And I just have to say my Kid Views tote bag goes with me to school every day. So once we return to in-person learning, back in the classroom it goes. That is a great tote bag. It's now a a souvenir of the internet past. So thank you so much. And thank you for having us on. It is. Thank you for having us on. And thank you for reading the post and being so gracious to have us come on and share our experiences because I think it is so important right now 
for all of us to understand this perspective as we work to be anti-racist and dismantle racism. This sort of umbrella of racism, um, I think people look at as sort of a, oh, like one size fits all, right? Like when they think of racism, they think of, you know, the historically, um, you know, ingrained racism in the black community, um, you know, they think about what's gone on with um, the Hispanic community, with, you know, immigration. You, you see these different big headline battles um, that are really endemic in our country. And I don't feel like Asian racism, that anti-Asian racism has gotten the same spotlight, um, especially because this has been building for quite a while. It has been. And it's interesting, too, because my husband, you know, he's white. Emily's dad is white. Um, he had a conversation with a co-worker last year, last spring after coronavirus started. And she lives down in Williamsburg and was wondering what my experience was like. And my husband said, I don't think Letitia's experienced anything where we live. And But he, he did ask me. He's like, wait, have you, have you experienced things but just not shared things? Because her experience was very different. And to be honest, after coronavirus, I wasn't experiencing so much of what others in the Asian community were facing. Um, and not to say that it wasn't out there and it didn't exist, but my experience was different. I wasn't seeing it at my school with my students or in the community that we live in. But it's not to say that people around me weren't affected and it wasn't worth knowing about and working to actively be vocal about. And, you know, thinking about it, I should have been more vocal early on, but just because it wasn't personally affecting me, I didn't see the need to. And now, of course, you know, given everything that's happened, um, you know, I feel the need to use my platform, raise my voice and not be silent anymore because this does affect all of us. Well, I mean, just a couple of months ago, I was on a, a, a forum um, for a college. I, I was reading comments by a parent, and she asked if there was um, if her if she thought that it was likely that her daughter would experience discrimination on campus. And I messaged a friend, going, "Discrimination? What is she talking? Because she's female? I didn't like it." My my friend was like, "You dumbass! Because she's Asian. Like it didn't. It's not top of my, now. It is now. It's top of mind. Right. But you know, a few months ago, like it." didn't even occur to me. It's a blind spot. Well, you know, I think anti-Semitism is the same way, right? I think it's a blind spot unless something happens. And, um, you know, as Asians, as a Chinese American who has roots in the San Francisco Bay Area, you know, my grandmother uh, was born and raised in San Francisco. She grew up above a shop that her aunt and uncle owned in San Francisco Chinatown. It was my great grandmother on my mom's side who immigrated. So certainly a long history, you know, Asians have a long history of being here, but it doesn't mean that there wasn't a history of racism. I mean, I hear stories about um, what it was like for Chinese Americans to work. You know, they were basically brought over during the gold rush and they built the railroad system in California and they had long braids. And if your long braid was cut off, um, it meant you couldn't return. And the same thing with the Japanese internment camps after World War II. You know, the, Jap the history of the Japanese internment camps is, is really quite awful. But these are things that we've either forgotten about or they haven't been taught in our history books. And so I think it's very easy to forget unless something like this, unless something happens, then it does become front of mind. But it should be more front and center. Do you think that, you know, I know 
like for Jews, right, when you've gone through enough generations of assimilation and you, you sort of take your Americanness for granted, um, especially if you live in a community where, I mean, you're still going to be a minority because that's what it is to be a minority, but there's enough other members of your, your tribe that you don't feel that way or you have enough sort of cultural cachet um, that so much around you has been influenced by your community that, you know, everyone's sort of, I want to say adopted and not appropriated, um, you know, those things. So when you all of a sudden are confronted with this like racism that is there, um, it's more shocking, you know, and I think to your point about San Francisco and the Bay Area, like you have this incredibly long, rich history of Asian communities. Right. But look at what we've seen, right? There was a Thai man in San Francisco who was just randomly attacked and he was pushed down and he fell and he died. And then just a couple weeks ago, uh, or last week, actually, that woman on Market Street who fought back against her attacker and who can be seen in those viral videos screaming at her attacker who then gets carried away on a stretcher. It's so surprising that in San Francisco, a place with a very big, very diverse, heavy Chinese population, um, big Asian population throughout the San Francisco Bay Area, um, that these things are happening, but they've existed. But now we're seeing these acts being more prevalent. And, you know, it's interesting too talking to my parents and Emily can share a little bit about this. But, um, you know, my mom, after the Atlanta shooting, when I talked to her and just to check in on them, she didn't mention anything. And, you know, Emily had a different experience the day after. And Emily, maybe you can share what that was like in the conversation you had with your grandparents about how they feel about things. Yeah. So, I mean, I definitely have a different perspective, you know, being half white and um, half Chinese, but I I felt that the Atlanta shooting was really like a wake up call for the internet and just society as a whole to realize like, like Asian directed racism is real and it's stemming. Unfortunately, it's always been here and it's always been, you know, going on and different people experience it different ways. But the things that have happened recently, it identifies a clear motive. And I think that that makes it easier for people and, you know, for non-Asian people around you to understand what's going on and understand that there's hate being directed towards you. So I had a whole bunch of friends reach out to me and be like, hey, like, are you guys doing okay? Is your family doing okay? And I don't know, I was kind of surprised because I've, I've never had anyone check up on me like that before. And I realized like, wow, like maybe this is indicative of a bigger problem. And that, you know, this is a reason that everyone should be scared right now. Um, so I called my grandmother because, you know, they live in the in the Bay Area still. And, you know, I, I like to call her and just check on her and everything. But yeah, she I didn't ask her about it. She actually brought it up by herself. And she was like, yeah, it's it's kind of frightening these days. Like, I don't want to I don't want to go many places. I mean, not only because of the coronavirus, but I see all these videos and I know that it's happening where where we live and around where we live. Because, you know, they live close to San Francisco, close to Oakland, and a lot of the videos coming off the internet are happening in Oakland and in Chinatown and, you know, general Bay Area. But the issue is that it's not just in those areas. It's happening everywhere. But those are the ones that are surfacing. So I think to her, there is that sense of danger. Like, I don't I don't want to leave my house. I don't want to go anywhere. And she specifically said, like, we... You know, my grandfather, she and my grandfather were going to go out to the Asian market and get groceries. 
And she specifically said to me, we will not go into Oakland. We will not go into downtown, downtown San Francisco. We will not go to Chinatown. We are only willing to go to this one place in a nearby city and we won't hang around. We'll just get out of the car, go get our groceries and come home. Um, so yeah, I think that, I mean, she doesn't want me to worry about her mm-hmm. as, as most grandparents don't. But, um, you know, I think that her experience with racism is definitely different than my experience and my mom's. Um, and it's not something she's necessarily shared with me. But I think that she does have fear. That has to be really frightening. Yeah, it is. It is frightening. She does. She definitely has some fear there. And she she has told me that she is she is afraid. And it could be, you know, I, I think about my experience, too, and what happened after Atlanta. It took me a cu- good couple days to really unpack what was going on there and reading, you know, I, I didn't look at anything really that that night after everything happened. And even the next day I was busy teaching and I had full a full load with kids. And so it, it was a couple days that I spent kind of not looking at the news and um, just internally processing. So perhaps the same thing is true of my mom that I talked to her so soon after that maybe she hadn't really processed and that fear hadn't set in until they did until they needed to go to the Asian market. And then it was like a surgical strike. It sounded like from what Emily said, surgical strike in and out, much like our, you know, coronavirus shopping experience were (laughs) a year ago. So, um, yeah, it, it is worrisome, especially because they're all the way across the country. You know, Emily, you bring up something in your article about, Um, I guess I'm just going to like use a big label and just call it microaggressions, but sort of things that are labeled as teasing um, Mm -hmm. when you're little. And can you talk about that a little bit and how, you know, just kind of the things that maybe you kept to yourself too, um, that, that made you, that maybe you're thinking about in a different way now too. Yeah. um, You know, obviously getting teased in elementary school is kind of like a universal thing, I think. Um, But, you know, I think it's taken a long time for me to realize and kind of reflect and remember, you know, just little events that didn't stand out at the time, but now, now that are kind of resurfacing as I'm starting to realize, you know, that, that I can be subject to these microaggressions that I can be subject to types of racism. Um, So I think, I mean, elementary school was a long time ago, but um, I'm specifically remembering, um, I think slurs, and then I don't know if they're I don't know if they qualify as slurs, but just like just words that are derogatory towards Asian Americans, and also um, the whole stereotype of oh, like Asian people eat dogs and what they eat and everything, and just like oh, that food is disgusting. Um, I don't know why you would eat something like that. Or like, or just stereotypes, because stereotypes to, you know, elementary schoolers, they don't make much sense. So, you know, like, oh, does your family live in China? Does your family only eat rice at home? Like stuff like that. Like, like very, like very little things that I think as an elementary schooler, I kind of brushed off and I was like, oh, like, I don't know. I mean, teasing is pretty normalized in elementary school and it definitely shouldn't be when it's about race. But as an elementary schooler, I didn't know that that was the case. I thought that you know, every, everyone was subjected to that kind of thing. Yeah, it's an interesting point you make. I mean, everyone may be subjected to that kind of thing, but not, um, 
about their race, right? Like teasing might happen for different reasons and none of it's good, but it's an interesting to think about, you know, those things um, and recast them for what they are. And Letitia, Letitia, I think this goes to something you wrote, which is about raising compassionate kids, right? <laughs> about things you can do. And it, it struck me, you know, I mean, Emily's article directly talked about, you know, what happens when you're not raising compassionate kids, like where this starts. Right. And I think we all know, you know, because we've known each other for so long since our kids were very little, it's, it has to start at home and the conversations and the things that you expose your kids to. And when you as a parent say, what isn't, isn't okay, you have to set the example. And I read this quote from Christine, Christine Coe, and she was um, on NPR And she said, it's high time to get uncomfortable. If you are a white parent and you're feeling like the conversation is uncomfortable for you, tap into your empathy and think about how uncomfortable it is to be a person of color and feel like you have a target on your back or to feel the serious emotional labor of reliving racial aggressions and having very real safety concerns every time you see yet another incident in the news. So I think the events in Atlanta and the things we're seeing on the news, it makes people very uncomfortable. But I know that discomfort is when we're pushed to learn and we're pushed to make changes personally and have these conversations with our kids. I mean, it's never comfortable to talk about the things that are hard, but I think the more often you do them, whether they're about sex, whether they're about race, whether they're about scary things online, um, the more conversations you have and regularly, that matters. And that's what, as a family, makes you able to have the conversations when things are really hard. I mean, talk about the good stuff, talk about the easy stuff, but then also that opens the door for the conversations about the really hard stuff, right? Yeah, you know, I think about um, how hard it is to be a teenager, period, right? Like just how all the things that are coming at you. And then I think about, um, and it's hard for adults too, but like when those moments happen in front of you, what does it look like to speak up, right? Like what, what did, you know, what did people need from each other to be comfortable enough to speak up, but also to, um, you know, not worry about them then becoming a target, right? I think that happens a lot where people, not so much with adults, but with kids, it's like, oh, if I stand up for this kid, now I become the target. Um, right. And I, I think um, Tim Kim Lamb, you, you, all, you all know her from I'm Not the Nanny and soon to be published author. She said something last week that really resonated with me that I quoted in my blog post. She said, start simple. Even saying something like, that's not okay, or hey man, why are you doing that? Or that's not cool. Something simple like that will make a big difference. Yeah, I can remember, you know, before I was the loudmouthed middle-aged person I am now, being in situations where somebody said something that wasn't right, and I would kind of look around, and if anybody else in the room had given a hint that they also thought that it wasn't okay and said something, I would have jumped right right behind them to, you know, but I wasn't going to be the first one to say anything at, then. Now I will be. And I, I just, I, I think that people don't realize how much of a mob mentality there is. You know, mob mentalities work the other way, too. If nobody says anything, nobody's going to say anything. And you'll be surprised how many people will back you up if you just say something. Right. And I think that's what we have to teach kids, right? I mean, I I know in elementary school, my son was picked on. He was very overweight. And so he developed empathy. And when other kids were picked on, he actually did speak up. And 
I think, you know, he had a sense that he was being picked on for something that, you know, at that point in his life, he had no idea why he was that way or what he, you know, what it meant um, and how different he was. And I think that, you know, the same holds true for race. You know, when you when you tease kids for their race, when it's just who they are, um, you know, you, you need to teach kids not only is it not okay, but here's why it's not okay. And here's why you need to say something. Um, and Amy, you're totally right. You know, one person says something, then it's okay. Yep. So true. And I'm so sorry he was teased because I think you're right. There's certain things that kids don't necessarily understand at a certain age. They just know how those comments make them feel and that hurts and that's not okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember being an elementary schooler and, you know, thinking back to those times where maybe people have said something to me that was, that was hurtful towards my race that I don't think I was necessarily making the connection about, oh, I'm getting, like, people are saying these things to me because, you know, I am half Asian. Like, I don't know. I think that part of it, part of it comes from teaching your kids about diversity and teaching your kids, like you said, to develop empathy um, and just exposing them to different, to different cultures and, and just, you know, just teaching them that it's okay to be different and just teaching them that there are people that are different than you out there, but it doesn't mean that you that you get to be mean to them. It doesn't mean that you get to make fun of them. That's that's just how they are and you need to be accepting of how they are. Um, and I, I don't know, I went to a pretty predominantly white elementary school and now thinking about it, I think that possibly some of these comments could have could have come from a lack of understanding of other cultures. And so I think to, in order to teach empathy, especially about race, you should be connecting with your kids and actively teaching them to be accepting of other people and other cultures. And I think, too, that, you know, I, I have friends who will say to me, like, I operate from a place of whiteness. Like, I don't see a difference unless you tell me there's a difference. And so I think sometimes we just need to think outside ourselves and challenge ourselves to do the work and get uncomfortable to understand what it's like to, like Christine said, you know, to what, what it's like to feel those racial aggressions or feel unsafe. Put yourselves in the shoes of others, and that's where some learning can start happening. So you, as an adult, can pass this learning on to your kids to teach them to be allies, to teach them to speak up, because we know silence is complicit, right? If you're not willing to say anything, then you're just letting it go and making it seem like it's okay when it's not. Yeah, and I think the other thing about silence is you're putting the burden on the person who's bearing the brunt of that attack to have to also now turn and be the one to speak up for themselves. Like that right. is a really hard um, position. And I, I think oftentimes I know I've had like two, two major times in my life where that's happened um, where um, you're almost made to feel like you're crazy or you mm -hmm. have to laugh it off um, or you'd like go along with the joke kind of thing. Um, and I think that's where silence is the most dangerous, because not only does it allow the person doing it to think it's OK that they said whatever they said, um, but it makes the other person feel like they have to, like, I don't know, somehow apologize for, it, you know, or like um, be a part of that. And, you know, I think there's like a myth of the model minority, right, when it comes to um, Asian Americans and and to a large degree, it's been the same with Jews. It's like, well, you 
are really smart and you are going to, you do really well in school and, you know, look at all these, look how, you know, well you all do. Right. Um, and you'll be just fine. You'll be just right. fine. Yeah. Because financially, like, and economically more things seem to be open to you. Um, and I think sometimes I think that is even, makes it even more toxic, right? Because then, um, then you feel guilty. <laughs> right like it you know like cause maybe some of those things are true but one of the things I think is really interesting with the Asian American community and this is you know obviously true in other communities too is like it's such a myth like it's called a myth for a reason mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and when you look at sort of poverty rates when you look at all of those things n- none of that holds um, and to me one of the things in Atlanta that was so horrifying that has gotten a little bit of mention, but not so much, is the intersection of the anti-Asian racism and misogyny. Mm -hmm. And what that means, you know, Asian women in particular, um, there's a whole other thing. And I was just wondering, you know, Emily, you're a young Asian woman, you know, you're, and it's, to me, that's even something else. Um, and I'm wondering if you've talked about that at all or how to like, I don't know, just as women, um, especially how this is, how you're sort of dealing or, or thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, so obviously the, the event in Atlanta happened, you know, very close to all the media coverage about Sarah Everard and the movement over in the UK about women's rights. And the way that it was presented in the media, at least to me or what I was getting, is that what was happening in Europe was very, you know, misogyny, patriarchal based. And then all of a sudden, you know, that this switch to focusing on Atlanta, it was like purely race driven. So personally, I don't I don't think I've made that connection yet between both of them. But I do feel some alienation just because of my gender and because of my race. I know that, you know that Asian women tend to be fetishized and also Asian men too, especially with the whole K-pop industry and then also the anime industry. Um, And I think that people should be actively recognizing that being Asian and and female or being Asian and male comes with different stereotypes about you, whether or not it's stemming from from anime or from the K-pop industry or just Americanized versions of Asian culture can often um, develop harsh stereotypes. But I think people should definitely be working towards identifying how it's different for both genders within a racial stereotype and and what they can do to not contribute to that or acknowledge that there is a stereotype. I discovered last week that I had only a very surface level understanding of intersectionality. It was one of those things that I thought I understood, but then I read something that explained it to me and I realized that I did not. And I'm going to link to that. It was a Facebook, really great Facebook post that's been going around that explores um, intersectionality having to do with both what happened in Atlanta and other things. So we'll link to that for our readers because it it was really clarifying for me. That sounds really interesting. And I think that's part of what took me a little while to process and unpack with the Atlanta shootings, right? It was a hate crime, but also it was a man who was going to a place and eliminating something that in his religion, it sounded like, um, was a temptation. So, 
there's there's really a lot to unpack there, but it's really important to understand and to understand the stereotypes of Asian women being subjects of fetishes, but then also understanding those male stereotypes, like Emily said. Yeah, there's so much work to do. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh, right? (laughs) And you know, I'm so glad we're, as hard as this conversation is, um, I'm so glad that we're taking the time to have it because, you know, we all process things in different ways. We, and, and I like to say that as individuals, um, we are all along a different spectrum of understanding. And so just by having this conversation and sharing it through your podcast, I think, I hope that there's some learning and some really good takeaways that hopefully this is really eye opening for some listeners that will push themselves to, um, do that hard learning that's ahead and to have some of those conversations with their kids when they see things that aren't okay or when they hear their kids saying things that aren't okay like take that time to correct them take that time to teach them to be better and to stand up and to not be silent and i'll also link to um a group that's been doing online um like bystander intervention workshops which i think Mm -hmm. is really helpful Mm -hmm. because they teach how to intervene when you see things like this happening. Uh, they're not talking about like amongst your friends. They're talking about, you know, if you see it in public, if you see it on the subway, um, how to intervene in a way that de-escalates instead of escalates. Um, and I'm sure there are other groups. So maybe I can gather a few because I know that these have been really popular and uh, not selling out. They're free, but filling up super fast. That would be so fascinating because I think a lot of people don't speak up because A, they don't know what to say. B, they worry that they'll uh, escalate and that they will then get injured or hurt in some way that that person will take their wrath and anger and and vitriol out on them. And I think to have an understanding of maybe how to intervene would be really helpful. And what I've heard too is that people don't want to get it wrong. Like, I don't want to say the wrong thing and offend the person by standing up for them, but then doing it incorrectly. So I think those resources are so important, Amy. Thank you for sharing them. Sure. And, you know, I'm not taking this particular one until April because that was the the next date that was available. Um, But in other things that I've read in the past, sometimes it's as simple as like sliding between the person who is the aggressor and the victim and being like, oh, my God, Sarah, is that you? Mm-hmm. Sarah, hi. Oh, my God, we haven't seen each other in so long. And uh, are you getting off at this stop? Here, let me get off with you. We have to catch up. You know, it's not even anything about the situation. It's just siding with the person and getting them out of there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so smart. And so important because here you've been a person that shows that you're on their side, but you have totally de-escalated that behavior. You've gotten that person to a safe place. So things like that are super helpful. And that's part of being an ally, right? And being an anti-racist. Yeah, it is. um, You have so many great suggestions on your post, Letitia. Like you just have like, I also love, um, and for our listeners, if you go to the post, we'll put a link to both posts, but there's a great list of Asian content creators Um, and I think, you know, continually diversifying your own social media echo chamber is really important. Mm -hmm. Um, but also then amplifying voices is so important because I do think part of our problem right now is that everyone has created their own little silo. Um, and you know, you can, it works two ways. You can either think, oh, everyone is participating in this. And look, everyone feels this way. I don't know what, why people think there's racism. All my friends are 
awesome. Um, and then there's the other way, which is like, you know, people who are feeding each other conspiracy theories and, you know, feeding these the hate um, or just even just complete disinformation. Um, so I think it's important that people take time and actually look at your social media feed because I hear from people all the time that they don't have real friend. They don't have diversity in their friend groups mm-hmm. and they don't know how to change that. And that takes like real effort and work a lot, of, especially when you're not a teenager or, a, you know, it's sometimes easier in school situations, but we have such segregated workplaces um, and COVID's probably exacerbated all of that. Um, but your social media is a place where there's like really no excuse. Like, uh, right. And I have to say that even through the content that I've posted on my Instagram stories, um, I've had people find me through hashtags and I've connected with so many other Asian creators that I, um, I need to actually add to my list because the conversations that I'm having with people through my DMs right now is really rather amazing. You know, other moms of biracial kids have reached out to me after Emily's post and they we've shared each other's work and I and there are some really great um, conversations that are happening that we're connecting as members of the AAPI community, but then also as moms, right, who are trying to do the right thing by raising our kids and not just moms in the AAPI community, but black moms and moms of other races, like who are saying like, my kids are biracial too. Your post is so important. Um, Hearing Emily's perspective is so important. And I'm going to share this with my kids too, just to let them know they're not alone. Yeah, so important. And with that, I think Emily, we're going to give you the last word. Why not? Um, (laughs) It it was one of the things that really struck me in your post was your um, conflict about whether you felt you had the right to, um, you know, speak about it or feel this way or speak on behalf of, you know, all those issues. And I thought that was really profound. And if you could like speak a little about that. And um, I I hope you do feel completely entitled to talk about anything because those are your experiences. But if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. um, I mean, I think this summer has really been a period of learning for everybody. Um, And I myself have done a lot of learning about what racism means to different people and racism experienced by different people. And, you know, connecting that to my own identity and asking myself, have I been subject to these things before? And, have I, am I not, and have I not realized it, or am I realizing it and suppressing it? And I think part of it is coming from, you know, part of part of what I was thinking about was whether or not, um, whether or not I can relate to other Asian people when they're talking about their experiences with racism. And, you know, I will acknowledge my white privilege, and I will acknowledge that you know, I look white, I have friends that come up to me and say, wow, I would never have known you're Asian unless I went to your house, or unless I met your mom, or unless you told me. And, you know, when it comes to being subject to racist attacks, I recognize that I will never, or I can work to understand what other people are going through, but I myself might not be subject to it. And a lot of my struggle has been thinking about that and and saying, well, if I'm not going to experience it in the way that other people experience it, Am I entitled enough to a position where I can speak out about it, even if I haven't been subject to it? But a lot of what I've seen over the summer is that everyone's learning that it's okay to speak up for groups that aren't yours, that it's very important to speak up about groups that aren't yours and to um, communicate your allyship to other people. 
and even allyship to a, a group that you're mem- that you're a member of. So, you know, I was speaking up a lot over the summer about Black Lives Matter and realizing that, hey, I'm I'm a member of the Asian community. And even though I feel like my place is different than others, it doesn't mean that I can't say anything because no matter what, I'm still practicing allyship and I'm standing up for people like my family, which is which is really important. Yep. That's everything. This is why I have so much hope for the future. <laughs> because I was right. just going to say, you're doing do amazing things, <laughs> yeah. really amazing things. And just being able to articulate that um, and think about <laughs> those things is incredible at your age. Yes, we are putting the burden of saving the world on your generation. I'm sorry. Someone got to do it, though, because our generation didn't do so well. Look at look at where we are. So we, we have to have hope in the future generations, right? Yes. I have blame the generation above us, actually, but okay. Okay, yeah. Okay, right. <laughs> Let's do that. That's better. Because we're working yeah. really hard to raise the next generation to do the right thing. There exactly. You go. We're even the better parents that are raising the better kids. So there you go. <laughs> there you um, go. <laughs> um, but thank you both so much for, for being on Bar Women. And um, I, it was just like... It's always great having you on, Letitia. And Emily, you are welcome to join us anytime. Maybe we'll have you on to talk about the college admissions processes in the fall. Oh, my God. Something horrifying. (laughs) You can give us a horrifying perspective on that. Um, But thank you both for coming on and hopefully next time under um, happier circumstances. But nothing more important than this. So thank you. Well, again, thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. And I, I really appreciate you guys holding this podcast and, you know, willing to hear our perspectives and willing to put this out there so that other people can learn about what other people are going through, because that's such a big part of, you know, diversifying, you know, people you listen to and also understanding where other people are coming from. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. We will be right back with our bites of the week. We are back with our Bites of the Week. Amy, what do you have? Oh, my latest obsession. Um, And of course, it has to do with food. Have you guys watched Searching for Italy, the Stanley Tucci series on CNN? No, I've just read about it. I haven't watched it. Okay, you're going to be so proud of me, (gasps) Amy. (laughs) You've seen it? So many people talked about it, and my walking group in the morning was talking about it, that I set it to record, and I watched the one about Sicily. Oh, the latest one, that the last of the season. So phenomenal. It's so good. Now I have to go back and watch the others. Yeah, there there are six episodes total. Um, The last one premiered this past Sunday. That was the Sicily episode. And um, it has been renewed for a second season, so there will be more Stanley Tucci eating his suave way around Italy. He there are 20 regions in Italy and and I think the goal is to do one about each region. But it's just great. It's it's that's all it is. It's Stanley Tucci eating his way around Italy and he's fantastic and he has such a love of food and he's Italian and um you know his family Well, as he says in the intro each time, I'm Italian on both sides. And, uh, you know, his family, his his family lived in Italy for a year when he was a kid, which is when he fell in love with it. And um, it's just great. Like, it's not it's not a cooking show, but they they give enough of a lot of the the foods that they're eating that you can try to recreate them. It's an Um, eating show. It's an eating show. show. (laughs) Definitely. And drinking. And 
it's an eating show and a drinking show, a bit of a political show. He not only does he not shy away from political stuff, but sometimes he seeks it out. Um, so that's that's been a great part of it. You know, a lot of talk about immigration because Italy's going through some stuff right now. And, um, you know, after watching the the first episode, um, which was about uh, the Amalfi Coast, um, I, of course, had to try to make this zucchini dish that he he and his wife are obsessed with called um, uh, spaghetti alla Norano. And it, I, I posted a recipe. I It's amazing. Um, and now I, I want to like make something from each episode. So I'm going to go back and watch them and, and pick something from the Sicily one. It has to be pasta alla Norma, which I've never made. Oh. Have um, you ever made the um, that giant, was it a timpani? Timbalo. The, that, timbalo that thing he makes in Big Night. That they, has always been my ultimate thing. <laughs> I They talked about that extensively in the last episode, in the Sicily episode. In fact, he goes to to an actual princess's house at, who makes uh, three three different ones. Um, wow. Or her cook does. Her cook does. Yes, that's true. Her <laughs> cook does. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I have never made one of those. Um, the, you know, the one, of course, that they make in Big Night is ginormous. I feel like I could tackle a more normal size one like they right, did like on the show. Right, like a 9 by 13. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but That's yeah, awesome. no, I, I'm more about the pasta. Like, I'm, I, I always want to recreate the pasta dishes. So, um, the, the timbalo is more like architecture. <laughs> but it's, it's great. And you can watch it if you have the CNN Go, um, app, you can watch it there. <sighs> <laughs> Although I have to, I have, well, I, I have to say that, um, well, you know, like if you, if you have cable, like you can sign right, in, right, right. um, but I have to say, I tried watching an episode on that app when I wasn't home and the commercial breaks are about as long as the parts of the show that they're showing. So not the best way to watch it, but they are still rerunning them on CNN. So like search it and, you know, set it to record and, and then just save them. That's what I, that's exactly what I did. So I came up with the Sicily one, but I'm hoping that it's going to come up with some repeats of the others. Yeah. Like if you have a TiVo, do a wish list so that it can catch them. Um, but yeah, just so enjoyable and um, so nice watching somebody travel. Oh my god, I miss it so bad. <laughs> right. <laughs> Although weren't they were recorded before COVID? Uh, some were, some weren't. There are some episodes where they're in masks. Oh really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, they usually say at the beginning if it yeah. was recorded before COVID because they don't want people to be like, why aren't you wearing masks? Right. Why right. and why are you eating from the same you know plate? Yeah. Exactly. I, I know it's like you watch people you know, touching and being in groups. You're like, oh, yeah. Oh, you're like, I'll never do that again. I'll never share food again. A taste of your pie with your fork. <laughs> I mean, the uh, three of us, the last, the, the very last time I was inside a restaurant to eat was with you guys um, over a year ago. And I remember we all shared some fries. And even then I was oh, yeah. like, should we be sharing fries? <laughs> So yeah. yeah, it's gonna. There's gonna be a recalibration going on when we I all think so. get out again. Yes, yes, for sure. Okay, all right, Andrea. So 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 we're not sharing fries. We're home. <laughs> we're looking at our houses. We're cleaning our homes, and I'm so excited because um, I am a huge fan of stick vacuums, and Dyson has a new stick vacuum out, and oh. it's so cool. Um, sometimes when I'm in my house, the sunshine hits a certain way 
And like every single strand of cat hair and piece of dust is just illuminated. And I go, oh, my God, my house is filthy. Well, apparently some really ingenious engineer at Dyson had the same experience as me, only he was smart enough to figure out how to do something about it. And he built the Dyson V15 Detect, and it's got um, a laser Oh, built is it a Jewish laser? To the <laughs> <laughs> it's built into the cleaner head and it kind of, it, it's designed to show you the hidden dust on the floor that you wouldn't see. So you know to vacuum over there, like you, you might go right past it. And it has these sensors in, it's called a piezo sensor, um, that automatically detects concentrations of dust. So it'll increase the power. It, it creates more suction. And... Then to show you how clean your house actually is, is I don't know. Do you guys, do either of you have a Dyson? No. no. Okay. So on the They're top so of this. expensive. <laughs> I have the so... other expensive one. I forget the name of it. What's the other expensive brand? Yelly. No. Shark? No. No. You don't have. It's LG? Not a Yelly? What else is expensive? Yeah. What else? You guys talk. I'll look it up. I'm blanking okay. on the name. Okay. Anyway, it has this sensor. And basically, when it picks up dust, it, it goes through this system, through a six-stage separation system. Aye, aye. And <laughs> there's an algorithm that counts and sorts the particles by size. So basically, at the end, on the top, there's an LCD screen, and it actually shows you how much, how like the accumulation of particles by size. So you'll know if you had microscopic dust or if you have allergens and pollen it's kind of like letting you get down to a very granular level of how dirty is your house i'm not sure um, i really want to get down to well, that I'm like, but i actually find it fascinating that it tells you what it is you're vacuuming up right like for me it's going to be all cat hair yeah but it could also be helpful like well if you have you know, allergies exactly like people who have allergies and can't figure out what it is right right now my cat actually has allergies and they Aww. think it might be dust and pollen and so you know maybe but i have your pollen cat in the house has don't allergies e- don't even ask how yeah, much money i have, a I have spent dog has allergies <laughs> oh my god okay but then i have something to tell you that's going to make you guys really happy now that v15 detect is $699, and it's awesome, but it's a lot of money for a vacuum. Dyson has made a vacuum for Rebecca. It is literally built for living in apartments and smaller spaces with hardwood floors. It's called the OmniGlide, and instead of just going forward and backwards, it's got um, four ways, so it'll go sideways, too. So you can go forward and then sideways. You can move it in any direction. Same kind of filtration system. Um, same kind of cleaning, just smaller, and it's three ninety nine. Oh, that's much better. I'm gonna much wait better. till Black Friday. <laughs> I'm still gonna wait. I'm gonna wait till it's two ninety nine. Um, I would like it to come with someone who does the vacuuming. So that's that's my thing. I don't care how good the vacuum is. If I'm still the one doing it, it just sucks. Are you a robot <laughs> vacuum person? So we have done the robot vacuum because actually vacuuming was my husband's chore and he... <laughs> so he gave it over so, to a robot? Yes. <laughs> so he... We are on our second robot. We are on the Roomba that like dumps itself, you know, cleans itself. <laughs> and um, it's it's the stupidest invention ever. I'm sorry to everyone with vacuum robots. It takes four times longer than if you just vacuumed yourself. 
it takes so long to vacuum. It has to like go back and dump the thing and has to recharge. I mean, it literally is the dumbest thing ever. But at least so, it does it all by itself, right? I'm not a fan. <laughs> I'm not a fan. I'm just annoyed by it all the time. Um, but anyway, that's my, that's a different vacuum story. Andrea, I look forward to buying that on Black Friday. Um, <laughs> I'll remind you. <laughs> yes. Remind me. I'm going to put it on my list. Um, all right. My bite this week is kind of a suggestion um, based on something I had begun. Um, I don't have to back up. My, my father texted me a picture of my great grandmother with her sister, my great aunt and um, her daughter and her husband about a week after they arrived in Canada, after the war, they had lived oh, wow. um, in the forests of Poland. They had escaped the Nazis and they they lived for three years in in the forest um, and survived. And I never knew this story. Like literally my dad's and I'm named after my great grandmother. So I always feel like I should know everything. And I didn't know she had a sister. I didn't know she had a sister who um, lived through the Holocaust in that way. And I didn't know anything about them. Um, And I was telling this to a teacher of mine and she said, you have to get every single living relative who knew them and knew her on tape, like now, because those stories will be gone. Good thinking. And I thought about that and I thought, oh my God, I don't have any of my grandparents' stories. Like they're gone and I missed my chance. I have cousins, like I, for that story, I have cousins um, who who were grew up with them, but um, who are in their seventies now. But like, I missed the opportunity to tape my grandparents um, and get all of those stories from them. And, you know, when my grandmother died and my cousin and I were going through all of her shoe boxes of pictures, we didn't know who any of those people were. And we didn't know what to do with the pictures, right? Even if they had names on the back, we're like, I don't know. Um, so this is my suggestion to people, especially during COVID, which has brought to life, you know, mortality even more, I think. Um, but if you're doing something still, if you're still on Zoom with your family, which you pretty much should be, it's a great project for a teenager. Um, interview your relatives. Interview your other generations. Um, even interview your siblings on perspectives on childhood memories you have and maybe what their memory is because you will be shocked at how different they are. But these are really worthy things in getting down. Um, even if no one in your family becomes a writer or a filmmaker, Um it's it's lost once these people are gone it's lost and we take a lot of pictures now but we're we're not recording those stories so that is my suggestion to people is to use the time and especially during covid um when you're still when like older people have become acquainted with this kind of technology and are now comfortable coming onto zoom um interview them interview them have your kids interview them have your grandkids like whatever it is and get your family stories down and, and a reminder that you it. can you can record a zoom conversation yes do it over zoom and hit you record can just, yeah yep you can see them in person if you're lucky enough and if once you're vaccinated and you can just press voice memo on your phone you don't need anything special um you know this isn't being broadcast to many people this is for you and maybe for your you know, kids or whatever. It's a great project for kids. 
And there's a section on StoryCorps, which we can link to, which is the incredible podcast done by NPR where they, you know, they train kids in high schools on how to be interviewers and stuff. There's a whole list of resources on StoryCorps for questions on how to interview people to get started. And they're great. There's like questions if you were doing peers, but there's actually like teacher guides and resources on there that your kid could do. Um, so if you are looking for something more interesting for your kid to do while they're still doing remote school, or even if once they're not, I highly, highly recommend um, getting these things while you can. You will regret not having them later. I'm telling you, I kick myself that I, I don't have my grandparents on tape telling their their stories. Yeah, I kept thinking about doing it with my own grandmother and never did. And it's a huge regret. Yeah, you should have, have Fiona do it with your mom. Yeah. You know, I mean, because she'll have memories of her mom. You know what I mean? Like those stories are, um, they're yours, you know, and you just, you don't get them back. And I, I am lucky in this context or unlucky, depending on how you look at it, that because um, she was in the Holocaust, there's actually quite a lot of documentation um, because uh, her daughter had been 10 at the time. And so she's, she's still alive, actually. And has been able to give like video testimony testimony to like the Shoah Foundation and a lot of cousins who um, escaped were able to give testimony. But you know, you you'd like to have the good stuff too, right. <laughs> just the horrible things that happen. But um, I don't know. I was thinking about a lot in terms of also what's going on with the, you know, the anti racism work and how everyone has an immigration story, and like part of building empathy around these things is hearing from your relatives about what their experiences were when they came to this country. Um, so, or being first generation and, you know, it's, it's important to have those stories so that everyone understands that like, unless your relative was on the Mayflower and like, good luck to you. A lot of people, it's recent enough that they can get those stories. If they go back enough times, you know? So that's my suggestion. Get your family stories on tape. Um, and that is our show for today. We'll have nope. links to everything we nope. talked about. One more important piece of information. I have an auric. Oh, an auric. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what that is. Oh, yeah. I thought you were when... telling us you had like a weird condition. <laughs> <laughs> no, I knew what it was. I haven't heard that brand in a long I'm like, time. Is this like, are you announcing that like something happened? I'm like, what happened? What the hell is an auric? <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's another one of those that are, you know, more expensive than they should be and probably oh. not worth the money, but I don't okay. know. <laughs> All right, it's a vacuum, people. If you were like me and went hoping that Amy didn't have a weird growth on her, um... <laughs> it's okay. There's a vaccine coming out for the orcs. So. <laughs> okay, um, that is our show for today. You can find everything we talked about on parentingbites.com on our Facebook page, facebook.com/parentingbites. Please let us know. You know, comments, uh, suggestions. Let us know what you're doing. Um, in your community and your kids to sort of do this anti-racism work. We'd love to hear about that. And otherwise, please rate, review, subscribe, and share from wherever you listen to us. Until next week, happy parenting. Bye. Bye.
Hey, this is our Parenting Bites disclaimer. Everything we talk about on the show is our own opinion. Any products we recommend, it's our own personal recommendation for entertainment purposes only. If you buy something through our affiliate links or you just happen to buy or see or read or watch something that we've recommended, it's at your own risk.